KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. The vice presidential candidates took turns sparring at last night's debate. Well, let's get so I, No, but Susan, I, this is important. Susan, I, and I, I want to add, yeah. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I have to I'm speaking. Yeah. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Has the pandemic forced California to come to grips with its homeless in a new way? California has more than 150,000 homeless people. Most of them, over 100,000 people by last count are unsheltered, so they're living outside. An investigation reveals inadequate staffing at nursing homes in spite of big profits. And we'll take a respite from today's news as the author of a book on the legendary San Onofre surfing beach takes us on a trip down memory lane. That's ahead on Midday. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Lives and livelihoods continue to be upended by the COVID-19 pandemic. California is attempting a delicate balance between caution and a population eager to resume some semblance of normalcy. It's hard to say what part of the population has suffered most from the shutdowns and restrictions of the past eight months, but a new investigative report highlights the effect COVID-19 has had on tens of thousands of homeless people in the state. While efforts to avoid a major coronavirus outbreak among the homeless have largely been successful, the impact of a societal shutdown has made life for them much harder. Joining me is reporter Angela Hart, co-author of the investigation by Kaiser Health News. And Angela, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. The main focus of state and community plans for homeless individuals throughout this pandemic was to try to keep them safe from the disease. Can you take us through some of those efforts? Sure, of course. So what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic, almost immediately, a few weeks after uh, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered the first statewide lockdown order, is there was a major scramble to figure out what is going to happen with all the people sleeping outside? People sleeping in large and growing encampments under freeway underpasses. We see it every day. If we live here, in, you live here in California, you see it every day. And so the governor and the Newsom administration really thought really, really hard about what to do to move people indoors. And so that's, I think, the, the most important public health intervention during COVID-19 that uh, from the state of California's perspective was really, we need to get people inside now. California has more than 150,000 homeless people. Most of them, over 100,000 people by last count are unsheltered, so they're living outside. So you can see the enormous public health catastrophe that was brewing. Um, so the governor said, we need to move people inside. Um, he was working on a plan um, quietly to buy up hotel and motel rooms before COVID struck. And so when it did hit, they sort of plucked it off the shelf and quickly transformed it into a, a hotel motel program to move homeless people who were sleeping outdoors into, uh, they call it non-congregate shelters. So the idea is enough 
you know, sh shelter inside with enough space to safely social distance. This is called Project Room Key. It had gotten a lot of glitzy coverage sort of in the media and we really endeavor to try and understand how it was working um, and not working and on the streets and outside. Here in San Diego, the convention center has become a homeless shelter. In fact, the city council just voted to expand the bridge shelter for women and families at Golden Hall. My question is, have the state's efforts largely shielded the homeless population from a widespread viral outbreak? Yes, so far uh, a, a widespread outbreak has been averted. And there's some interesting reasons we heard why um, from some of the public health experts we talked to. There's sort of a natural segregation, if you will, among the homeless population, at least the unsheltered population. You know, we don't, we as in the general public don't have a lot of interaction with people who are sleeping outside. And so that has sort of provided a natural barrier. And the Project Room Key Hotel and Motel Rooms, of course, have provided um, critical safe shelter that really has been important and in some cases life-saving and yes, has prevented uh, major outbreaks among the homeless population. Um, I will say, however, there is still a giant fear among homeless service providers from Southern California to Northern California in rural California and in coastal cities and counties, there is a giant fear that we are not out of the woods on COVID-19. And there is still a big fear that this could rear up among the homeless population, especially given that Project Room Key Rooms by and large are winding down by the end of this year. And as we all know, COVID isn't going away anytime soon. And how has life changed for homeless people who remain unsheltered? It's really been heartbreaking to, 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 to hear and to see really how much more difficult people's lives had gotten. You know, interestingly, this is not something that we had expected when we got out and started our reporting. We really wanted to understand how people, how the public health impacts were being averted. But really what we saw is sort of these sort of ad hoc cobbled together supports that homeless people, homeless communities really have developed um, have been shattered. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the closure of public libraries uh, during the various shutdowns, the closure of restaurants, the closure of stores. It really cut off electricity. It cut off food, food access to food. It cut off clean water. And, you know, that has made life so much more difficult, but it also has increased some of the public health threats faced by the people who are sleeping outside in California today. People we talked to in Imperial County, people we talked to in Fresno County, rural rural California, people are bathing in canals. People are bathing in dirty water. Um, and so it's really a threat on multiple levels. And that's just one part of it. What Some other ways that life has gotten harder, you know, mental health and addiction has worsened. And we, we heard directly from people who said, you know, we can't get our mental health condition under control. A gentleman I spoke with, you know, had had his bipolar disorder, had been getting worse and worse because he couldn't access his Medi-Cal benefit. Um, so there's stories like that all over California, heartbreak. And and again, this is one of those areas where uh, I think the hardships are continuing and there's a lot of fear among the homeless people that we, to we talk to um, that it's just going to get worse, unfortunately. In El Centro, your report introduces us to a man living in a tent outside the city. Tell us about Carl Wilkinson. He's had to make it through on his own and says it's a lot tougher. 
You know, Carl Wilkinson is a gentleman who who has been homeless for quite some time. Much of his life, he has been living outside. But one thing that we heard from the many of the homeless service providers is this is the exact type of person who really should be getting indoors during COVID. He's got sensitive health conditions. His age puts him at outsized risk for COVID-19. And really, these are the people like Carl are really the types of people who um, the state says should really be prioritized for a project room key room. Um, however, you know, Carl, like many other people in California, um, were not placed into a room and are left living outside to their own devices. Again, sleeping in, in unsafe, unsheltered encampments, sleep, bathing in canals, bathing in dirty water. This is, this is a very, very dangerous situation. Now, some advocates say that despite the increased strain on many homeless people, the efforts being made because of COVID have actually helped many people find housing and find a way off the streets. Is that also the case? So yes, the people who are lucky enough to get inside, the people who are lucky enough to be selected for a room or for a housing unit or you know, long shot, but permanent supportive housing, some of some of the most coveted housing, you know, those rooms, those shelters, that that housing really can be life saving. But I cannot overstate this enough. They are far short. And we heard that all over California. I've been speaking with reporter Angela Hart. She's co-author of the Kaiser Health News Investigation. And the headline on that is Hard Lives Made Harder by COVID. California's homeless endure a slow moving train wreck. Angela, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. The vice presidential debate last night was particularly significant at a time when the presidential candidates are both in their 70s and we're in the midst of a pandemic. Both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris dodged questions about how they might handle an emergency that required them to step in, but they did reveal sharp contrasts in the two parties' agendas. Here to reflect on what we learned from the debate is Michael Smolens, columnist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Mike, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Alison. So what did you think voters got out of last night's debate? And, you know, what, what was your takeaway? Well, I, I think that, that there might have been a little bit of a relief that, that there were some sharp exchanges, but it was, it was a civil debate. Uh, you know, we, after the presidential debate last week, we almost forgot what that was like. Uh, it wasn't, you know, entirely, uh, you know, gloves on. Um, they took some tough shots at each other, spoke over each other and went beyond their time limits. But the, the bottom line is that vice presidential debates really don't often factor in much uh, to the election dynamic. And I think it's safe to say that this one did not. OK, well, COVID, of course, is top of mind for everybody. Um, and the two candidates did respond to it as, a, as one of the first questions in the debate. Here's part of their exchange. Whatever the vice president is claiming the administration has done, clearly it hasn't worked. When you're looking at over 210,000 dead bodies in our country, American lives that have been lost, families that are grieving that loss. But when you say what the American people have done over these last eight months hasn't worked, that's a great disservice to the sacrifices the American people have made. 
What do you think he, he was referring to in terms of the sacrifices people have made? Well, I, I think he was trying to turn things back on uh, uh, vice presidential candidate Harris. Uh, you know, she was talking about the administration. Uh, she wasn't talking about the uh, American people and the people that have stayed home, that has have worn masks and done the right thing. Uh, you know, so he, he did try to suggest that she was, uh, you know, taking a shot at them, which wasn't the case. But, you know, he was in a difficult position uh, in large part to his and President Trump's own doing because they have not... Uh, really come up with a coherent strategy to try to uh, approach how to, to contain uh, the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, so it was a tough position to defend against. And I think as we saw through the, uh, the night on that and other issues, he sought to change the subject somehow, or at least change the direction. Yes, uh, there, were, there were a number of questions that the candidates dodged, both of them, in fact. And of course, that is normal political tactics, but it did seem more blatant last night than usual. For example, they, neither of them answered the question about whether they had a plan for assuming power if their respective presidents were incapacitated. Um, do you think we learned anything from the candidates' performance to tell us about who they are and how they might govern? That was the most significant question that, as you point out, went unanswered with uh, the presidential candidates as old as they are. Uh, you know, the, 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 the passing of power is a very significant question uh, in this election. And uh, it was a shame that neither of them even came close to answering it. They, they just went on to other things. And then um, Mike Pence completely avoided the question about pre-existing conditions, which is, you know, a very important issue for many voters. And health care is a strong suit for the Biden campaign. Do you, do you think that he set people's minds at rest about health care? I, I, I don't. You know, they, he reiterated, as the president has said, we have a plan. Well, there is no plan. And it's four years in and they don't have a plan. They haven't pushed a plan. Uh, they're in court to try to strike down the only existing plan, which is the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare. And the big component of that, of course, is, uh, uh, you know, coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. He also talked about how uh, the public doesn't like it, or I'm paraphrasing there, it is, it is against Obamacare. Over time, uh, I think a very strong majority, according to polls, have uh, agreed that it's a good thing uh, for the country to have. So, uh, it's a tough argument for them, for them to make. But again, uh, not having any plan of their own to counter that other than just some rhetoric uh, falls pretty flat. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of not addressing the question, Harris did not directly address Pence's question about court packing. I mean, do you think Pence was effective in his accusations on the issue of the Supreme Court? I do. I, I, I thought so. I, I thought just, you know, and also talking about, uh, you know, uh, they uh, nominated Justice Barrett. Um, I, I think that that focus uh, might help energize the conservative base, what it might do to potential swing voters, I don't know, and, and probably not much. Sort of lingering question I have is, that's an important issue, whether they you know expand the Supreme Court or so-called pack the court, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of an insider game right now, and I just don't think that's at the top of people's agendas. Uh, like I said, I think that that is something that alarms conservatives and people that are really paying close attention and watching a lot of cable news. But uh, for the average voter, I just don't know whether that's something that's yeah. going to uh, uh, swing their vote. Yeah. Well, speaking of voters' agendas, you know, they did differentiate themselves very clearly on climate change. You know, Harris called it an existential threat and Pence spoke of climate alarmists. 
But how important do you think climate change is to voters? I think it's very important. I, you know, and I've written about this and talked about it, that it's, it's unfortunate with everything else going on that it is uh, being pretty much ignored. There, there was just a, a story the other day about how um, September, this past September, was the hottest September ever on record. Well, to find that story, I mean, that's a significant story, but to find that story on any given day this week, uh, you really had to search for it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think uh, Jerry Brown said this, former Governor Jerry Brown said this about the nuclear war threat as well as climate change, uh, sort of the end of the world isn't news. Uh, there's been so much going on in the moment. There still is this sense that that's far in the future, but we're finding almost on a daily basis uh, that it's coming upon us pretty quick. Uh, so I do think that, that people are very concerned about that, but uh, we seem to be hyperventilating over so much else right now. <laughs> well, finally, you know, do you think Pence succeeded in painting Harris as far more liberal than Biden? Did he win over more to undecideds? I think he was effective when he brought up the Green New Deal and, and that they opposed fracking, which, of course, the Biden-Harris ticket doesn't. But she at one point did support the Green New Deal, which has become this red flag, uh, mixing my color metaphors there, um, to, to conservative voters that you know, the expense, you know, the limits on whatever they may be able to do in terms of driving. Did they swing anybody? I, I don't really think so in that regard. Great. Well, Michael, we always like talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on again. We've been speaking with Michael Smolens, columnist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. A key question hanging over the tragically high number of COVID-19 deaths at nursing homes is, do they have the money to do better? KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma reviewed the finances of a local nursing home with a poor care record and has this report. Old photos of Irma Easton show a young, dark-haired, luminescent beauty whose life brimmed with promise. Decades later, her life ended June 8th when paramedics failed to revive the 66-year-old after she choked on powdered donuts in her room at Avocado Post Acute in El Cajon. She didn't have to die this way. They're trained medical staff there. So what are they doing? Easton's daughter Beatrice Barrio says an avocado nurse had given Easton a pack of the donuts, then left her alone to eat them, despite the fact that Easton was a diabetic and needed her food mechanically softened due to a swallowing disorder and a history of choking. Obviously, they're not providing proper care. 
Delivering proper care has been a challenge at Avocado. KPBS reviewed Avocado's financial reports with the help of lawyer Ernie Tosh. He is a nationally recognized expert on nursing home finances. We found the for-profit facility has failed in recent years to provide the level of nursing care expected by regulators. The regulators, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, published the expected level of staffing and reimbursed burst avocado based on the needs of the facility's residents. Yet in 2018, the records show avocado shortchanged its residents 184 hours of registered nursing care per day. And they're not making it up tomorrow or the next day. It is never going to be Tosh found the 2018 registered nursing care deficit at Avocado was part of a pattern. Avocado shorted its residents more than 170 hours in registered nursing care per day in both 2016 and 2017. Avocado's lawyer, John Cohn, argued in a written statement that the facility's staffing ratios of registered nurses were in line with California and national averages, but he never addressed why they were not in line with what federal regulators expected. Tosh says CMS's expected RN staffing levels were meant to ensure that residents received the care they needed. The RNs are the frontline top medical providers in the facility. When you don't have them there, you don't have anybody that can assess the patient, that can determine if they're developing an infection. If you don't have RNs, your healthcare system breaks down in a nursing home. Avocado's complaint history shows that the facility might have systemic problems. From 2017 through October 5th of this year, 462 complaints were filed against the nursing home, according to the California Department of Public Health. 56 of those complaints were filed this year alone, more than four times the statewide average. Cone, Avocado's lawyer, said many of those complaints were self-reported. He added that given the large size of the 256-bed facility compared to other nursing homes, quote, it logically follows that it will have more incidents to report. But nursing home reform advocates say complaints against Avocado are still high even when factoring size. Over the years, inspectors have cited Avocado for lax infection control, abuse of residents, falsifying records, and failing to keep the place free of hazards. Avocado has also had the second highest number of residents who tested positive for COVID-19 among nursing homes in San Diego County. The core issue is that there's inadequate staffing at this facility Brian Lee is executive director of the Texas-based nonprofit Families for Better Care. The residents end up suffering. By understaffing registered nurses, Tosh calculated that Avocado has saved $1 million or more annually from 2016 through 2018. Yet Avocado has brought in more than $3 million in profits in both 2017 and 2018. Clearly, when you're making 3 to $3.5 million a year in profit, you could staff properly. This is not a facility that can stand up and say, we didn't have the money to do this. Meanwhile, the California Department of Public Health investigated Irma Easton's choking death and told her daughter, Beatrice Berrios, that Avocado was not at fault. Berrios doesn't understand 
that conclusion. They let her die there. They didn't help her. They didn't provide her assistance in the moment that she needed most. She died in the most painful, horrible way that I can imagine that she would die. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. It's good to speak with you. The report we just heard is the second of two reports focused on nursing home care and revolving around avocado post-acute. Now, yesterday we heard about a 73-year-old resident who was allegedly sexually molested by an avocado employee, and that same employee then went on to allegedly molest a resident at another nursing home and ultimately lose his state care license. My question is, Amitha, who has the ultimate responsibility of protecting residents in for-profit nursing homes? Well, the administrator of the facility does, um, but if the administrator falls short, it's the job of the other layers of regulation to come through. And by that, I mean the California Department of Public Health, which inspects nursing homes that are federally funded through Medicare and Medicaid. Um, And those inspectors act on behalf of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So they go into a nursing home and they inspect what's going on. They investigate incidents like this. But Maureen, Let me just say something about both the California Department of Public Health and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Again, they are the regulators of these nursing homes. I have not found the CDPH or CMS to be very communicative. They have underperformed in answering questions, in producing data, in producing relevant data in a timely and complete way. And at any point in time, I don't know that their data is reliable. And this is happening at a time when people are deeply concerned about their parents, about their loved ones in these nursing homes, and information coming out of CDPH and CMS is critical. It's absolutely critical. Well, I was really surprised that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services doesn't do audits of these nursing homes that are mostly operating on Medicare money. Is there any agency that watches out for fraud at these facilities? No. We asked a very specific question about that, and they said they do not perform audits. And and by the way, that's backed up by lawyers who uh, represent families suing nursing homes. Now, the alleged victim of that assault is suing the facility. What does she hope the lawsuit will achieve? Well, I think she has two goals, one of which she mentioned in the piece. She believes that the people who didn't properly report the sexual assault, didn't properly report what allegedly happened to her, should never be allowed to work in nursing homes again. She thinks that's justice. And she wants the caregiver who allegedly did this to her, to be charged by prosecutors. Now, today's report, the report that we just heard, focused on the discrepancies between staffing levels claimed by Avocado and the actual hours of care the residents are receiving. Your report seems to indicate that this isn't a mistake on Avocado's part, but could be a deliberate misrepresentation in order to save money on care. Well, if it's a mistake, maybe the the figures that they represented in terms of what they provide 
or how many hours of nursing care they provide their residents would have happened in one year. But for three years in a row, Avocado said that each of its residents received a total of 5.2 hours of total nursing care. And when you look at the actual hours worked, that simply was not the case. You know, I'll bet most people don't realize that nursing homes are viewed as great investment opportunities. Had you heard that before? I had not, but I've never really covered this area before. And and in terms of being great investment opportunities, this is a situation that has really developed over the last two decades. So now you have a bunch of large nursing homes um, that are basically chains and they are publicly traded companies. And in even those that aren't are owned by private investors or private equity companies. And they have all created these layers of corporate ownership. They have their own management companies. Uh, they've put their property in limited liability companies or trusts. Is to limit legal liability. And of course, it's beneficial to them tax-wise. But where does this leave resident care when the overriding goal of nursing homes is now profits for owners, profits for investors? So you're left with a situation where quality of care takes a back seat. And as our stories demonstrate, regulators aren't really regulating. And I suppose the question that people are left with is, how can an individual or a family member figure out if a care facility has the staff and track record to be entrusted with the care of a vulnerable person? Well, that's just it. I mean, you nailed it in terms of your question. There is no reliable source other than word of mouth, your gut, lots of shopping around, um, asking a lot of questions. You can go to the state's website, the CDPH website, to find out how many complaints have been filed against a particular facility um, and then compare it to other facilities. But it's still a very difficult process to figure out. And, and there's certainly no guarantee that after completing that process that you were going to be able to find a quality facility for your loved one. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Maureen. The 49th Congressional District includes San Diego's coastal North County from Del Mar up to Dana Point in Orange County. It was a hotly contested race two years ago when Democrat Mike Levin wrested the House seat from the Republicans. This year, Levin is challenged by Republican Brian Marriott, who is hoping the blue wave that swept through the district might recede again. Here to give us some perspective on the race is KPBS reporter Shalina Chetlani. Shalina, thanks for joining us. Hi, glad to be here. So now, back in March in the primary, uh, people said this could be a tight race because Brian Marriott actually started primary night ahead of Levin, but that changed and Levin ultimately won with 60% of the vote. So tell us, what is Levin now campaigning on? What accomplishments does he have to show? Yeah, so in, in the March primary, it was really interesting because it seemed like there were more registered Republican voters then. And now it's looking like uh, Orange County and San Diego County Registrar of Voter data shows that there are slightly more Democratic voters this time, 38% compared to 36%, and about a quarter are independents. 
And so that could significantly change things. I mean, we see that Levin ultimately won by 60%, but now it's looking like there are even more Democratic voters this time, um, which may reflect him securing the seat. But in terms of what he's campaigning on, um, Levin has really built a lot of his issues around fighting climate change, um, around figuring out a solid waste site for the nuclear waste on San Onofre, um, getting it off of the beach and putting it in a federal repository, um, as well as a lengthy history of veterans bills. And he points towards the veterans bills to uh, show that he is bipartisan. Here's what he has to say about that. Well, I've tried to be a bipartisan leader in Congress, and I think the record speaks for itself. Uh, you know, I uh, sit on three committees. I'm the chairman of a Veterans Affairs Subcommittee, where I've helped to introduce 20 bills, bipartisan bills, 12 of which have passed the House, four of which have already been signed into law by President Trump. Uh, look at my own record, and I'm very proud. We've uh, uh, done a, a very good job in trying to represent our community. And in my interview with Levin, he talked about how they recently just passed another piece of bipartisan veteran legislation uh, not too long ago. Okay, so he's saying that he's right in the middle. What does Marriott have to say about that? How's he challenging Levin? Where, where does he think he might have some leverage to actually unseat him? So Marriott says that, you know, essentially that's not true. Um, he claims that Levin is on a very liberal side of the spectrum and that he wants to do things like have public health care. Here's what he has to say about that. I mean, Mike is a very, very ambitious progressive. He's part of a progressive caucus that has ideas about nationalizing our energy sector, our health care sector, and that means putting you and your family on a government-run plan quickly. I mean, that's their plan, and that's not what families want. So Marriott's point here is that voters in the district want a little bit more variety. They want to have options. They want to be able to choose a private health care plan if they want to. And that's actually a, a huge part of his campaign platform. And so, you know, he thinks with that sort of issue, he could really flip the seat because he thinks that voters want to have those options. So now in, in terms of San Onofre, does Marriott have anything to say about the dangers of storing nuclear waste on the beach there? Marriott's point is that under a Republican government, things would have happened more quickly, um, that Levin hasn't used the issue in, and turned it into a bipartisan issue. And that's the reason why we've seen little progress on the moving of nuclear waste into a federal site. And so his retort is essentially that he could be doing more, though Levin has run numerous task force, including including the former um, chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to address the issue of nuclear waste. Now, how does President Trump play into this race? Is he an asset or a handicap for Marriott? I asked Marriott about that um, and about sort of the impression that Republicans might be getting or that Democrats might be getting is either side of the spectrum here um, in this race. It has become a very divisive race. And he says that while the president has at times said things that can be very crass, it's coming from a place of having experience with business. He's a businessman. And Marriott is also a businessman. He, and he uh, relates to that. And what he says is that he doesn't think it's going to hurt him, but that he will focus more on channeling 
the business side of his experience um, into the work that he's doing and leaving the uh, sort of divisiveness behind him. And then in terms of fundraising, um, Levin has raised half a million, but uh, Marriott has raised almost 400,000 himself, not a shabby amount. Um, Is there a, a sense that Marriott has quite a bit of financial backing? Well, I'm I'm unclear on where he's getting his campaign finances from, but it is evident that he does have ties to the business community. He is a businessman. Um, And so maybe that is giving him some leverage in terms of uh, being able to uh, raise funds for his campaign. But ultimately... I, I'm not quite sure how much of a difference the the finances really make at this point in this race because it is a swing district. And so I think it will really mostly depend on voter turnout and that quarter of independents who could go either way at this point. So, and, and I think that Marianne and both Levin understand that that's the case. Okay, thanks so much. Obviously a, a race worth watching. Shalina. Thank you for your insights. Thank you. We've been speaking with KPBS reporter Shalina Chetlani. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. At times like these, the carefree days of Southern California's surf culture at its height feels almost like a dream. It's comforting to look back on those sun-drenched days of riding the waves when things like COVID-19 and sea level rise were nowhere on the horizon. Our next guest has written a 1,500-page book that documents in detail the history and culture of surfing at San Onofre State Beach. David Matuzak is the author and publisher of this tome, which is called San Onofre, Memories of a Legendary Surfing Beach. Dave, thanks for joining us. Aloha, Allison, and thanks for having me. So now this book is one of the biggest books I've ever seen. It's 1,500 pages packed with photos and documents recording the the history and the culture of, of San Onofre. How long did it take you to put it together, and why did you think it was important to document this history? Well, it's an eight-year project, and uh, most of that was after I retired from a 40-year teaching uh, career. And I had so many friends that were the pioneer surfers in California that were all in their late 80s and early 90s, and they had stories to tell. And I became uh, the person who chronicled uh, their lives in the earliest days of California surfing, going all the way back uh, to the 1930s. Now, I know you don't live right next to this beach, but you're still willing to get up at four in the morning to, to make the trek to spend the day there. What is it about this beach that keeps people like you coming back? Well, it's a magical place. Uh, it's, it's been described as a Shangri-La of surfing by many of the old surfers. 
Um, the first surfers arrived in 1933 at San Onofre. Whitey Harrison and a group of surfers from Corona del Mar had spotted waves at San Onofre driving by, and they were actually coming back from a surf trip down in Baja, and they drove up to Corona del Mar, said, hey, we just saw some good waves at a place called San Onofre. They took two carloads of surfers in 1933, drove down to uh, San Onofre, and they documented the first surfing at San Onofre. What is it about the waves at San Onofre State Beach? How, how are they different from waves in, say, Northern California or Swamis, you know, here in San Diego? Well, one of the most uh, important things about surfing, uh, the waves, is consistency. And San Onofre is world famous for the consistency of the waves. I mean, there's only probably three or four days out of the entire year where there is not a wave of some kind that you can ride. Now, of course, it hasn't always been a state park. Uh, the beach is sort of technically on Camp Pendleton. So how did the surfers manage to get the Marines to grant access to it when they were conducting military exercises there? Okay, well, the surfers had been surfing for nearly a decade prior to the arrival of the Marines in 1942. So they knew the value of the waves. And so they insisted on being allowed to come in and surf there beginning in 1942. And in at first, the Marines were reluctant to let them in. But because of the uh, decade-long history of surfing already there, the Marines granted a group of the surfers to surf only the area that we now call Old Man's. And they could only surf it if they regulated their own behavior. So eventually, in 1952, they formed the San Onofre Surfing Club. But they had a locked gate. Uh, it became a private uh, beach of sorts, and uh, many people re uh, referred to it as the most exclusive club in the world. There were as a five-year waiting list to get into that surfing club. There were movie stars that couldn't get into it. And so between 500 and 1,000 surfers only were allowed in at that break. Now, the other locations along the beach, primarily trestles and church, were completely off limits because that's where the amphibious landing craft were training. And so that was a cat and mouse game of hide and seek between the surfers and the Marine Corps for decades there. <laughs> that that was sort of when the, the culture was at its height, though, at the end of the war, after the war. And you talk about a culture that was almost like a monastic order of beach bums who, you know, pretty much took vows of poverty and chastity. Was that part of the surf club culture? Well, that's the way it started. Before World War II, it was a group of wild singles for the most part. They were heavy drinkers, heavy partiers. Uh, there was certainly that beach bum uh, influence along the beach, but many of those surfers went off to war during World War II. And when they came back, uh, they got married, they began to raise families, and San Onofre transitioned from a wild singles surf club to a family beach. And now it's become world famous for its family aloha spirit. Now, President Nixon apparently was instrumental in getting the, the beach to become part of a national park, which made it much more accessible to the, to the general public. How, how was he involved? Well, in the 1970s, uh, he was, of course, at the Western White House there on Cotton's Point, overlooking San Onofre. 
And uh, rumor has it that he asked his aides, why isn't that beach open? And he was told that it was private. And he said, well, let's find a way to get that open. Now, it didn't hurt that one of the members of that exclusive club, the San Onofre Surf Club, was his deputy attorney general. Uh-huh. So he was also in, in influential in, in making that happen. And some of the officers of the San Onofre Surfing Club met with President Nixon there uh, on the beach, and they actually gave him a, a surfboard for his daughter that was uh, inscribed uh, to him from the San Onofre Surf Club. And I have photographs of that meeting in the book. So yes, it was uh, Nixon did play a role in opening up San Onofre to the public and making it a state park. And I guess that was a, a mixed blessing for the surf club, huh? which was pretty elitist in the sense that uh, now just anybody could show up, right? It, it really was. And at first, the, the surf club was furious about it. There was even talk of disbanding the surf club. There was talk of moving it to another beach. You know, you can't hardly blame them. For decades, they had this place to themselves. And uh, in a very short order, that attitude changed. And uh, the surf club welcomed new members. And the surf club itself for decades has been instrumental in preserving the aloha spirit at, at San Onofre Beach. And they've also been very instrumental in keeping the beach primitive. That's another trademark of San Onofre. There's been l very little development there. Uh, we didn't, and I'm a member of the club, have been for about 40 years. Uh, we have really tried to keep away from developing the beach and having it become something like uh, Doheny State Park, where there's a lot of concrete and and, uh, uh, you know, ornamental uh, plantings and so forth. And what you find when you drive down to, to Surf Beach, which is the beach where Old Man's and the Point is, you drive down onto a dirt road that parallels the beach and you pull up and park right next to the sand. There's native uh, flora there along the, the bluffs of San Onofre. And it's, it's very much in its natural surroundings. The only development that has been made in uh, recent decades has been to put in r restrooms, uh, showers, and uh, drinking fountains. And that's pretty much it. So do you have to be a surfer to want to read this book? No, not at all. Because the effect that surfing culture has had on Southern California culture, California culture, and even American and worldwide culture has been profound. So the book, San Onofre, Memories of a Legendary Surfing Beach, is being distributed through San Diego Surf Shops, and it's also available at the website pacificsunset.com. And we've been speaking with author David Matuzak. Thanks so much for being with us, Dave. Thank you so much, Allison. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.